We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. This is Mean Lean from ArsenalVision.co.uk. And welcome back to another Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. A winning Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. Not only a winning one, but winning against Chelsea and Jose Mourinho makes everything so much sweeter. Life is so much better at the moment. Finally, we've got that scruffy monkey off our back and we have finally stuck the knife on Jose Mourinho and beat him at his own game to match. Beautiful, wonderful stuff. Today's show, we've got Elliot, James and Paul all talking about the... Wonderful team performance at Wembley, and it makes me rather happy. So I'm going to hand you over to the guys to discuss the game, and you enjoy the podcast, and we'll be back after the West Ham game. Rafael Benitez says Kareem Benzema is definitely... What? Not... What do you mean actual football? Like like a game of football? Well, what happened? Really? Okay. No, that's great. Okay, thanks. Arsenal beat Chelsea in uh, Curtain Razor in Community Shield. This is just in. We will be talking about actual football and transfers. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter, at Yankee Gunner, if you haven't done it so far. As always, we are an organically growing, tiny little podcast, needing your help desperately to stay alive. So if you could, please write me a check or money. No, that's not right. Uh, Please leave us a review at iTunes and let everybody know. Uh, what you think of the pod, unless you don't like the pod, in which case, um, forget to leave a review, totally unnecessary. We've got two fantastic guests on the pod who are going to talk all about Arsene Wenger getting his first victory over Jose Mourinho, 
uh, the performances, the result, what it means for the season. We'll even do a little bit, tiny little bit of prediction of what to expect for the season to come. But first, let's introduce those guests because, you know, they're important. The first is James. You can follow him on Twitter at GoonerFanatic49. Hello, James. Hey, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Well, you know, whatever whatever time it is. I guess it's morning for me, it's morning for Paul, it's afternoon for you. And for the listener, who knows? All we know is their pants are not on. Um, but it is good to talk to you. Anyway, Paul is here as well. You can find him on Twitter at Poznan in my pants. Paul, welcome. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. I love the pregnant pause because I never know if it's you actively pregnantly pausing or just your internet crapping out. Because either probably, one is possible. Probably my internet cropping out again. Nah, it's fine. You know what? I think that's kind of become a feature of the podcast. Oh, Jesus. Every every podcast needs its thing. That can be ours. All right, so it was a great day uh, at Wembley. Arsenal now four for four in the last four trips to Wembley. I guess technically we're six for six, right? Because there were two semifinals there? Yes. Which is Indeed. even better. Um, but... The beautiful thing is that uh, Arsenal did get the win over Chelsea. As we know, it's Arsene Wenger's first win over Jose Mourinho. A lot to talk about. Uh, We can spend some time talking about the handshake that wasn't because everybody seems fixated on that, although I don't think it's as big a deal as everyone makes it out. But let's start at the top. Lineups. Uh, The manager went without Giroud, uh, following along with what he did in the FA Cup final to end last season. He started Theo Walcott up front. Maybe even more surprising, though, was how he deployed Ramsey and Santi Cazorla, where uh, Oxlade-Chamberlain started in his more natural wide right position. Cazorla was moved out of midfield to play on the wing, and Ramsey started in midfield. So, James, we'll start with you. What was more surprising to you, Theo starting over Giroud or Ramsey taking the midfield role over Santi Cazorla? Um, the Ramsey selection in the middle, um, just because of how frequently we've seen Santi playing um, that deeper playmaker role throughout the second half of last season um, with Ramsey out on the right. And given the success that we had with it, um, we had our best run of form with that starting 11th. The Walcott change was a surprise, um, more so in the fact that I, I thought one of Alex and Theo wouldn't start and Olivier would. Um, and But then again, I mean... It's not too dissimilar a lineup to the one that started on the, in uh, last most competitive game, the FA Cup final, where Theo started in the middle there. Um, and you know, it's a testament to the depth of the squad throughout the season that I don't, you know, there's not that great a difference from a quality perspective as to whether or not Theo starts or Olivier starts. Obviously, the major difference is the um, the completely distinct uh, difference in style of play that the two players possess. So. Um, yeah, I mean it's yeah, it's it's very difficult to 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 guess with Arsene as to who he's um, who he prefers in the moment as to whether the lack of Alexis meant that he he felt the need to have both the Theo and Alex starting to provide the pace, especially given that um, Santi was going to play out wide. Perhaps if Olivier had started in the centre with Santi out on the left, we would have lacked a little too much pace going forward. So that was, that might have been part of the reason as to why that took place. Okay, and I mean, as far as the rest of the pitch, anything surprising to you? I mean, and we saw Hector Bellerin start instead of uh, Debushi. I know some people thought Debushi might start. Nacho Monreal took his left-back position. Anything else that you thought was out of the ordinary or pretty much what you expected? Um, it was pretty much what I expected. I I was unsure as to what the manager's opinion on Debushi was. Um, 
obviously Bellerin had had a fantastic end to the, uh, last season. Nacho had been excellent, but throughout preseason games, we'd seen the two fullbacks that supported Koscielny and Mertek to be that of uh, Matthew and Gibbs. So for me, that was a little up in the air going into the game. I personally was delighted to see it being Hector and Nacho because I just, I love the two of them as fullbacks. Um, I thought that back four was just so solid um, in that second half of the season last year. Um, and Hector's just such an exciting player to watch. He didn't, I mean, he didn't necessarily have his best game. I thought he was more than um, up to it. And I I hope to see him starting most of the games this season. But, you know, we'll we'll see whether injuries or um, that Debussy experience comes in um, into Wenger's, Wenger's decision-making throughout the season. I agree. Um, as for you, Paul, anything that you took from this as being unusual or a sign of, of things to come, do you think that uh, Ramsey will more often than not now take that, that central midfield role instead of Cazorla? And is that something that you'd want to see happen? Well, let me, uh, uh, here's what I'd say. What surprised me about uh, the selections was the formation, which I actually struggled with quite a lot to kind of get my head around. Uh, out of possession, and not to be too Michael Coxey, but out of possession we were clearly a 4-4-1-1. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, you can't really talk about Ramsey being in midfield without, you know, it being in that major context, which is, in effect, we had four people across that midfield with Ox on the right and Santi on the left. Um, If you look at Ozil, um, almost all of his touches in the game were on the left. Um, And a lot of that has to do with us transitioning from when we didn't have the ball to when we did. He'd kind of, he'd be in the center when we were defending. And then he'd transition up up the left wing. So you'd often see Santi and Cazorla on the left with Ozil slightly ahead of him, like on the goal. Um, so to me, discussions of who played where, you know, what allowed us to have Ramsey in the middle was the four four one one, which I don't think we're going to do all the time. We did it quite a lot in the City game uh, when we got our 2-0 at the Etihad. So I do think there's a bit of the... Uh, special occasion against Chelsea and it been very contextual I mean uh, I, I think Cork and Ramsey if you looked on the internets Ramsey got a lot of criticism yesterday and I think most of it was overblown I, I don't think people appreciated just how much work he did so I but, criticized him I'll raise yeah. my hand yeah I thought his passing was really poor especially first 25 30 minutes of the game a lot of a lot of misplaced passes, a lot of turnovers in in midfield, and I I don't think that's something that we can afford to see regularly. I you know the the one thing Paul that that I I think makes this kind of a moot point is once Alexis is back, he's going to play on the he's going to be the left forward. Yep, and it's not going to be Cazorla, and it's not going to be Ramsey. That means yep. that either Ramsey is going to move out to the right, yep, instead of Oxley Chamberlain, or he's going to go to the bench. I, I don't think he will play over Santi Cazorla. I mean, maybe he will. So this is probably just a case of more of a one-off, right? I, I mean, yeah, not yeah that, that's really my point. You, you, you can't look on this as a template. We're not going to be playing four four one one against most teams this season. And it's not, you know, even yesterday, Cazorla's control of the ball, his mastery, that tightness. I mean, you just, you just can't lose that. 
over the course of the season. I would defend Ramsey. I think he did really, really well yesterday. But I know what you're talking about. And as the central guy right next to Coquelin, you need a guy who's super tight and super uh, uh, classy in terms of his touch control, etc. And that's, you know, nobody does that better than Santi, really. Yeah, I, I think the other issue becomes because you're not necessarily going to have Coughlin as an option to interchange passes with a lot to get past uh, any pressure in midfield. You need someone there who's really good with the ball at his feet, who's harder yeah. to dis- dispossess and can be a little trickier. And while Ramsey can make good driving runs, I don't think anyone would argue that he's got the close control that Cazorla has to get out of tight spots. Um, just a- your opinion, Paul, I mean— Let's extrapolate this out just a little bit further. Let's say for some reasons we couldn't pick Sanchez in a game. Would you prefer Cazorla? And let's say let's assume for a second that Coughlin is starting. Do you prefer Cazorla to be that that deeper midfield player, or do you think Ramsey yeah. there is the choice? No, no I think Cazorla. I mean, you, there were so many times yesterday where I thought Cazorla with the ball just pure silk. Uh, and you, beside Coquelin, you need somebody who can control, set the tempo. You know, Cazorla has a lot of what Arteta has. I mean, they're quite different. But both of them, once they have that ball, you have this sense that, that they're going to distribute it, control, change the pace, etc. Ramsey uh, gives us so much, but those aren't his key strengths. Mm-hmm. And just a final word on, on Walcott. I... I know Walcott is a favorite player of yours, and, and he's a player that I like as well. Yes. Um, rubbing your hands together. In a yeah, I, so, I'm ready for this. I know I know he got a lot of shit yesterday, well, and I know yesterday was far, far, far from his best game, or I would say even a good game for him. And yet, for the first time in 13, 14 uh, attempts, we beat Chelsea. It worked. Uh, the goal he was instrumental in. Uh, we looked really good against a Chelsea team. Now, put it another way. If I told you we were about to play Chelsea, um, we could both predict whoever our striker was, unless he was world-class, probably wouldn't look very good because that's what Chelsea do. That's how they win the league. They make your attacking force neutered. They let in less goals than anybody. Even a a not tip-top form Chelsea, which they were yesterday. The one thing they're going to be is organized. The one thing they're going to do is neutralize. And that means they're going to stand off Theo, and they did. And it gave us space. And although the other thing I would say is we complement a team that wins when it's not playing well. In a sense, that's what I think happened with Theo yesterday. We won we it worked for us even though he didn't play particularly well in fact it was you know, you know he had something like 12 or 13 touches doesn't mean he didn't have an impact in how they played against us and the space uh, ox had on the right and the runs other people made it as a formation it worked the other thing that worked for me is the theo giroud thing you know i'm not particularly bothered if one game Giroud starts and Theo comes on after 70 minutes and, and tears it up. Mm-hmm. And as I've said a couple of times before and written about, it also works the other way around. I've seen, and I think we all have, multiple times when Giroud comes on with 20 minutes to go, he looks fresh, his legs look good. Um, you know, he's now the guy who's getting into space running around the place. And so in many senses, I think it worked, even though Theo had 
his most meh game for a while. Well, I, I guess the question is, look, Theo Walcott is never going to be a focal point. That's not the way he plays. He he affects the game with runs off the ball, trying to run off the shoulder of the last defender, uh, overlapping, creating space, pulling players out of position. He had 13 touches in 65 minutes and played six passes in 65 minutes. Now, it turns out one was an assist, um, and he could have arguably uh, had a penalty awarded. So, you know, the question with Walcott is, it obviously means we have to play a different way, but I don't think you can judge Theo Walcott's performance on the number of touches or the number of passes or the involvement on the ball because what he gives you is involvement off the ball, and then you know he's going to have a couple of chances that he's usually very effective at taking, whereas Olivier Giroud is totally different. He is a focal point. He's going to come deeper, collect the ball, lay it off, you know, um, uh, head the ball forward. So he he is going to fill up the stat sheet, so to speak, with involvement, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that involvement is more effective. Now, as it happens, I thought he was fairly effective uh, against Chelsea with the exception of the chances he didn't put away. James, um, I thought that we did some things well, but obviously because we won, a lot of people are portraying this as a fantastic performance. Before we get into specific incidents, what did you think of the performance as a whole? Do you think that this is a case of the ends justifying the means? I mean, didn't Chelsea kind of outplay us in this game, or would you say that we played exactly how we wanted to? Um, I thought the performance as a whole was pretty good. I mean, listen, you don't, you can't expect to play against the Premier League champions whose squad effectively hasn't changed and we're only lacking Diego Costa and expect to... Uh, run rings around them and dominate the game for the full 90 minutes. That being said, from where I sat, I thought we certainly had the better of the first half. Um, and from the point when we scored, it had to be said that we looked like a side that became somewhat tentative, certainly in the second period of the match. Um, and I think some of that was down to this mental hurdle, as Arsene referred to it as, um, playing against a Chelsea side that we hadn't beaten in, for, I think it's nine games, and obviously hadn't beaten a, um, a Chelsea's a Mourinho's Chelsea side, um, certainly under Arsene. And I think that was the reason why we ended up sitting as deep as we did, and it wasn't in quite as structured a manner as it was against, say, the City away. I think some of that can also be down to what period of the season we're at. I mean, it is still only a preseason game. But that being said, the match was played at a very high level of intensity. Um, and it was clear that both sides, especially when you assess the types of substitutions made from both managers, it was a match that both teams really wanted to win. Um, and I don't think you can ever call it a bad performance when you, when you beat a Chelsea side 1-0 and keep a clean sheet. Um, and I know Ramirez and Hazard both had two very good opportunities. Those were really good opportunities. Yeah. They were great opportunities, but having ground out in the way that we did, we then fashioned out arguably two better opportunities to Santi and, and Kieran Gibbs, or certainly equivalent opportunities towards the end of the game. Um, and if you look towards the Chelsea side, I think there'll, there'll have been many times throughout um, the certainly last season and against the big teams where they put out similar performances and came out with the um, with a slender win, and on the day that's all that mattered. So I don't. I certainly don't think the performance was bad. It it wasn't stellar, but you know we're talking about football here. I don't 
you know, we can't always expect everything to be to be perfect, especially when you play a side like Chelsea. And I think you're going to expect over the course of 90 minutes against a team of that quality to perhaps con- concede certainly a couple of chances. You'd ideally not want to concede a chance like that at Ramirez's because he really should have put that away. Um, and so I think the the players can go back feeling extremely extremely good about themselves. That I think. One thing to, to also clarify is, you know, Chelsea are probably, as some are suggesting, about a week behind us in the preseason. We're we seem pretty ready for the uh, the start of the season. If if matches were beginning today, I'd be feeling pretty confident. But if you look at even Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain's post match, I think he made a slightly facetious comment in that the interviewer said to him, you know, it was a great performance from uh, the Arsenal lads today, and he kind of jokingly responded saying, asking, was it? Um, so I think you know the the club and the squad internally believes that they can they can certainly improve upon that, and it wasn't um, it wasn't a stellar performance as such. But I think that in itself is perhaps even more promising. I mean, we you, as, as you'd even mentioned, we talk a lot about the idea of champions not playing fantastically, but coming out with the three points or coming out with the victory, and that's exactly what we did yesterday at Wembley. Um, albeit in some in, in a kind of preseason-ish game, but certainly one that I think both teams took extremely seriously, um, and the psychological boost of finally getting the proverbial monkey off the back, um, and being able to beat the the champions in um, in in that type of contest is big for the side, and there genuinely was a much a, a greater difference in the way in which both teams. Um, went about that match compared to the Community Shield last year when we played Man City, and there were a whole host of changes that took place, and it was more, it was much more of a run about it. There wasn't the intensity and the tackles and the challenges. We had that little, I think it was that slight bust up towards the end between was it Falcao and Arteta where there was a little hurdle, and the referee had to get involved. You know, it was both teams really wanted to win that game, and you know, Arsenal would have come out with a victory, and of course Mourinho and, and Chelsea and. And their fans will all be suggesting, which is fair enough, that you know this is, they're, they're still a, a week away from uh, the start of the season. And well, here's the dumb thing: look, winning is always better than losing. It doesn't matter when the game is. Winning is always better than losing. And beating the uh, the champions from last season is always better than losing to the champions from last season. So there's no scenario where winning this game isn't a positive, and there's no scenario where winning this game isn't helpful because the the converse losing it certainly wouldn't be helpful so i think it's clear that winning it is beneficial how beneficial you know we only have to look to last season where we beat the champions in the community shield and proceeded to go on the worst start to a season that we had in 30 some odd years so i don't think it's it's necessarily indicative of the kind of start we're going to have um but Winning it is better than losing it, and so there's there's no reason to pick the bones out of that. I think if there's anything that concerns me, interestingly, I like the second half more than the first because there were things in the second half that encouraged me. There was protecting a lead and creating good chances on the counterattack. There was uh, good organized defending and uh, good organized defending on set pieces in particular. There was professional time-wasting. I mean, there was just a good professional display in the last four or five minutes of just dragging those last four and five minutes right out of the game without really giving Chelsea any opportunities. There was a lot I liked there. I think my bigger concerns came in the first half when the match was still even, where I felt that Chelsea was on top of us in the midfield. Um, And I thought a lot of that was down to 
the two of Ramsey and Coughlin not really getting to grips with the midfield. Um, and, and, you know, look, ultimately, we also have players missing. We have a very important player in Alexis Sanchez who's going to re- reconfigure that whole setup. So we'll see how that works. Um, Paul, the goal was sensational. It came off a great move, a, a little counterattack move. Ozil finds Walcott beautifully in the middle of the field. Walcott plays the simple but important pass overlapping to Chamberlain, and then Chamberlain shifts to his left, takes advantage of Aspilicueta, and actually a really nice overlapping run from Bellerin to pull, I believe, Matic out of the equation, and it's a fantastic shot in the upper left corner. Oxlade Chamberlain's goal there, is that going to— stick in Arson's mind and, and really just encourage him even more to try to find a place for Oxlade Chamberlain, who is definitely banging on the door, but doesn't really have a place in the starting 11 that you could say is, has his name on it. Yeah, I think it's going to be a really big deal for, for Ox. I mean, he, he started this, the preseason with intent. I, that's his second great goal. He had the, the goal was it against uh, Lyon, where everybody scored? I don't know, but anyway, he had a. I think he scored. Maybe he scored the second against Lyon. Anyway, uh, I think we all remember the goal itself. So um, he looks like he's got his eye in playing from that side. Uh, he's been electric. Uh, we talked about you know he does have a little bit of an Achilles heel that he needs to grow out of. Mm-hmm. Uh, the occasional midfield loose pass or the occasional big touch. And it uh, seemed like a lot of people jumped on that from our podcast when he took that big, big touch yesterday. In in the box, uh, yeah. 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 And I, I really think that's a, simply a feature of the fact that he's mostly played on, on, on the wing, on the right, and you can get away with that. In fact, it's actually helpful. The first touch being a big touch is often how he gets into full stride, and then he hits another one past the player. And I'll just add to that quickly. I think when you're a player whose pace an explosive pace and power is such a big feature in your game. Yeah. Learning to cushion the ball and have the technique is challenging because you're looking to really explode from, from a standing position and beat a man. And I think it can be very, very difficult to have a soft touch when you're an explosive player like that. So that just takes yeah. time. But, but he is a guy who has tankers. So uh, I think it's just he's adjusting to the fact that he won't always be bombing up the right wing and a big touch helps, which it often did. Uh, you know, Hazard is so lethal because he can keep that ball right under his foot um, and, you know, pull people into him and jink and change. And, you know, uh, Ox needs to develop a little bit of that at the edge of the box where he's, uh, you know, got, got a soft touch and a, a redirecting first touch and those kinds of things. He definitely has the techers. Um, and he showed it on the first goal. What I really liked about the first goal, too, is you kind of talk through the moves, but there were a couple of moves just before that one. Uh, Mertesacker banged the ball uh, up the left, but William came charging through to almost steal it off Santi. Um, but he, he managed to re- rescue the situation. Then the ball comes back to Santi, and he flicks it over somebody's head. And then on to Ozil. And it was a, a beautiful move. You, you talked about the, the Bellerin... Uh, run that opened up the space for Ox. But just before that, I had thought when I watched the replay, I'd be able to brag that Theo had made a run that made the space before dropping back. But it was actually Ramsey who had charged up and made the first run that pushed back their centre-backs to make the space. So 
you know, it was a, it was a play that had four or five players who really contributed to it. And that's why I say in many senses what we did yesterday worked and getting too caught up a little bit in who played well or not well. I liked how we set up. I liked how we tacked, attacked. I liked our overall approach of attack. We got the first goal, which is a big deal, and that allowed that. I think then the flow and the narrative of the game changes a little bit when we had the first goal. Agreeing with, with James that we played pretty well in the first half, I agree with you. We weren't winning that midfield battle, but we're never going to in in some senses because of the physicality they always put in a midfield. They're always going to make your attack look neutered and they're always going to have a big impact on how you play in midfield. You're probably not going to look good in any game against Chelsea. It is largely about the result. It is largely about getting it done. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I think that, again, when it comes to football, it's a results business. And, and if you play a certain way, this wasn't a case of us nicking a jammy win. This, you know, I'm not suggesting whatsoever that, that Chelsea you know, outplayed us or, or anything like that. Um, we've got a lot of great questions, actually, for the podcast t- today, and uh, we'll hopefully be making this regular feature of the podcast. The The Twitter handle for the podcast, by the way, is Arsenal V as in Victory Podcast. That's at Arsenal V Podcast. And you can use that uh, Twitter handle or hashtag to submit questions. We usually do these after every match, which is why we call it the Post-Match Podcast. Um, one for you really quickly, uh, Paul, and then, James, I'll let you answer the, the follow-up that sort of makes sense to it. Ed Wilson at Ed underscore Wilson 87 asks, which player are you most excited about watching this season? Got to be the Ox for me. Is it the Ox, Paul? Is that the player that we're really looking for to be the breakout sensation this season? Well, it's not a bad call. Um, uh, <laughs> I'll rule out Theo because that's cheating, but I'm genuinely yes. excited to see what happens if he gets a good run at it and what he can do. But yeah, I would think across the uh, the, the the kingdom of Arsenal, uh, if Ox keeps doing what he's doing, I mean, he's just going to be immense. Um, you know, there's a lot of focus on Sterling. Uh, Hazard has already established himself. Um, Ox can be every bit the player Hazard was last year. And people think Sterling is about to be. I think, I mean, he's just electric. His potential, you know, Arsenal's talking about looking to get 10 goals from different players, including players like Ozil. But you can absolutely see how the Ox can contribute 10 goals this year. And if Theo comes in with 10, we didn't get last year from him, etc. You know, we get a full season out of Ramsey. Uh, Ox could be huge in what he contributes and could absolutely be the difference. I mean, he's just electric. And we've seen that all preseason. Now we're getting into real games. You would have said, yeah, but but doing it in preseason, what does that necessarily mean? If there's, There were probably a couple of players that really stood out yesterday. But against Chelsea, I mean, he absolutely popped against a team that's really good at making attacks look neutered and ordinary. Mm-hmm. He's the guy who really popped out of the screen. He he's a standout player. At his best, he you would almost say he can't be stopped. I, I've been making the joke because uh, Clive uh, Clive AFC, not quite sure the Twitter handle is always going on about how he wanted Pierre uh, Emmerich Aubameyang, and to me, you know, Ox at his uh, uh, if he achieves his potential, 
is everything you'd want out of a player like that that we don't need to bring in. We are he is like a new signing if he does everything he seems capable of doing and stays fit. He'll play and he'll get in there and it's going to make it really tough with the Ramsey on the right debate. So, by the way, everybody, that is Poznan in my pants who doesn't want us to sign anyone or spend any money and uh, just called Ox like a new signing. So send your abuse to Poznan in my pants. All right, so James. And, and to, be, to be honest, Elliot, I really do struggle with the idea of signing people because I'm we, like. We but have that- to buy a striker. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. But I really do struggle with it. I know, but because I, we I love agree. our lads so much, and we they do. all deserve a chance because they're such sweet, w- lovely guys. It's more I want to see them play and fulfill their potential. But if there's a world-class striker out there, we need to go. But, but here's the thing, it. right? Seth Fabregas came to Arsenal during the Invincibles, and he, he forced himself into the squad because he was that good. Like It's like the whole homegrown thing. You don't make players better by removing the roadblocks and the obstacles. You make players better by having the cream rise to the top, right? I mean— you yeah. fight and you struggle. I mean, if you can get into this Arsenal side, you're a pretty good player. If we make this Arsenal side better and you can still get into it, then you're an even better player. So, yep. so James, it actually leads to another great question, and it's from Joaquin, or uh, you can follow him at Twitter, at Morning Pint. Great follow. Um, also does some great podcasting as well. Joaquin asks, and actually Rob Parrott, at Rob underscore Parrott, uh, P-A-R-R-I-T-T, wanted to ask this as well, but Joaquin got there first. Who loses playing time or suffers the most from the Ox being in our starting 11 week in, week out? So first, will Ox be in that starting 11, James? And if so, who's, who's the player who stands to lose the most playing time or suffer the most as a result? Is it Theo? Um, well, let's assume a hypothetical world in which Arsenal don't suffer injuries and therefore starting 11 becomes a genuine... And don't uh, sign a striker. Indeed. Um, I, I think... I just don't think Santi or Ramsey can be dropped um, at all, given that they've already, you know, they're already at that level, and thus there's still plenty of breathing room um, for the Alex to come in as soon as there's some sort of injury that takes place. But I think I think he's ahead of Theo in the pecking order, certainly for playing in the wide positions. Um, it's ju- it, it just comes back to the the, the Santi Ramsey conundrum: how you fit those two both in the team, and I, I can't see a team where you don't play Aaron, and I can't see a team where you don't play Sanity. Um, and when Alexis is back, I think Ramsey has to play out, right? Um, but with Alexis being out at the beginning of the season, the player that misses out is arguably Giroud, um, because I think we'll see Theo starting through the middle and Alex definitely out on the right. Um, the other player that actually might, struggle as a result is Jack Wilshere because oh no he's fine he doesn't have an ankle so it's totally well, so it doesn't even it, it's somewhat irrelevant indeed um but Arsenal has spoken a lot about Jack now being more of a prospective wide player most likely because of just how congested the positions are for that um central midfield spot um but I think Alex is certainly ahead of him in the pecking order um but just to very quickly add to Alex, to Alex as a player, I I was surprised to find that he's still only 21. For a player that's played, I think, 117 games or so, including substitute appearances for Arsenal, at that age, it's really remarkable, especially given the number of injuries he's, in, he's um, incurred over um, the course of his time at, um, in an Arsenal shirt. And he's the player 
that you look at that has the most in his locker? Um, I think you can talk about that with Aaron as well as, as being such a complete midfielder, obviously very different arch- archetypal players. But Alex, you know, we can look back to that, that famous run against Bayern Munich that I think we'll all, we all remember quite fondly, the way in which he, he can, he has that close control, the ability to beat several players, his two-footedness, his ability to strike the ball, um, the way he, you know, the way he can be a player on the outside and, and cut the ball back in and his crossing ability and his pace, his, um, his work ethic, he's, He's very rare in a, a wide player, attacking player like him to have just such an all-round game. Um, you know, we see it in glimpses. As much as he doesn't score goals, as much as, as much as he didn't get assists, I mean, a lot of that can potentially be attributed to his A, his inexperience, and B, just the stagnated progress he's been able to make given the injuries he's had. Um, so I, I think without a doubt, he is a player that has the most potential up, um, upside. Um, mm-hmm. So that it, he's, he's certainly the most exciting player to, to be following. And, and especially given oh, he's, he's about to turn 22 mid, midway through this month. But you know, I mean, he's still so incredibly young. It's one, it's one of the reasons why I actually thought Cazorla might go this summer. Because if you think about it, it would have made Arsene Wenger's life very easy. And if Cazorla wanted to go and he let him go, then Ramsey plays in the midfield. Oxlade-Chamberlain has a path to being a regular starter on the right. Alexis is on the left. And then you rotate Theo and Giroud, whoever's more effective through the middle. Or you can play Theo on the right if Ox is injured or not as effective or Jack Wilshere there. With Cazorla in the side and arguably our best player last season aside from Alexis, you cannot leave Cazorla out. And the managers made it clear he won't leave Ramsey out. I mean, how do you leave an Aaron Ramsey out of your side? So unless you're going to drop Coughlin and play without a real specialist defensive midfielder, which, by the way, I think he will do quite a bit this season, it is very hard to see where Oxlade-Chamberlain starts. If Ramsey's on the right, Alexis is on the left, Santi, Coughlin, and Ozil are in the middle, there's no room for him. So I think he's going to spend a lot of this season as a 70th-minute, 75th-minute substitute. Until, yeah, but, yeah, you know, it's it's it. Listen, I mean, yes, but it goes back to the idea of this this idea of a starting eleven is somewhat of a fallacy. We play fifty games over the course of the season. We've talked so many. He so hardly much rotated in, at in all years, last season over the last eleven games. Sure, because yeah. of the running. But we, I mean, the amount of change we had to we had to go through during the first six months of the season was was enormous, um, and. You know that that comes to when you have the Capital One Cup, when you have those Champions League games, when you got Premier League games coming midweek as well, when you have the New Year's fixtures, when you know you're playing three games in the course of a week. Um, you know you need you need the depth of squad, and we've the issue for this team for so many years during this barren um, spell was was just the was that lack of depth and, and also that lack of quality. So you know you talk about. You know, you did just mention. You know, if you, if a world class striker comes available, then it forces other members in the squad to have to reach that next level if they want to even have a shot of being in the starting eleven. And that's exactly why you have you have your Ramseys, your Cazorlas, your your Oxlade Chamberlains, your Wilshires, your Walcotts, your Giroux's all in the same squad because they're all pushing one another. And if you can find that right balance whereby 
you have players at a certain age, you know, you have Callum Chambers, who's a fourth choice centre back, but is probably more than happy to be at a club like Arsenal and be fourth choice, given where he knows he is in his career right now. He's still a player developing. If you and you have that in, in your in your Oxley Chamberlains, people at that age where they, they know there's still room for improvement and they and they've got to push themselves to play and learn from these world class players that are in the squad with them, that is just gonna make these players and, and this squad grow more and more as a unit. And I think that's why it's so key when you when Arsene assesses, you know, just even like the small things such as the personalities of the players that he brings in. Why like Mario Balotelli was never like ever gonna be considered as close to um, a possibility to come into the side um, at any point like, during last year's transfer window. Because w- when you form that bond, and even with a big, big, deep squad where you have four players competing for two positions or two players competing for one position, there's still that admiration and respect amongst the players where it's, there's, there's still a more amicable ma- atmosphere amongst them that I, allows I the right. squad I mean, to prosper. At some point, like I, I agree with you, but it's not like Aaron Ramsey hasn't said, if I don't play in central midfield, I'm going to Spain. And Santi Cazorla said, I prefer to play in the center. And Mesut Ozil said he didn't like being played on the... On the left, I mean, it, it's not like these players don't come out and ma- make their point. Theo Walcott constantly tells you he wants to be played through the middle. So, yeah, with Theo, Walcott, you know, we're not we're not running a charity for because all a two year contract. Listen, I but you know, I, I mean, obviously, I fully appreciate that, and obviously, players have their preferred positions. But frankly, when it comes down to it, Aaron Ramsey is going to play out on the right for several games throughout the course of this season, and he'll eventually become a, a central midfield player for a long period of time at Arsenal Football Club. There's no doubt about that. And Arsenal isn't going to worry too much about these little issues where the Theo like, always wants to start out in the middle. He's going to have no issue playing him out on the left or out on the right if he, if well, he feels not. like it benefits I'm not saying the they're going to go on strike. I'm just, I mean, all right, let, let's do this because we're totally off topic. How many starts in the Premier League do you think Oxlade-Chamberlain will make this season? 20. I'd say eight. You, Paul, final thought? Uh, I like the 20 number. Okay, I, I, that's insane. He's going to start 20 Premier League games this season. Yeah, he, he's I the will, next... In- I will tell you this. You name the amount of money you want to wager on that, and I'll double it. I'll go double on that. There's no James chance. would like to bet 100 yeah. sterling with you. Yeah, there's no chance he plays. He starts. All right, all right, starts all right. 20 minutes. Unless we are riddled, and I mean, how could we ever be riddled with okay. injuries? But. Let, let's specify this bet because I'm all in. Um, you said eight. I've said 20. Should we go 15 plus 15 under? Well, no, because I, I, my point is more that 20 is out of the question. I mean, could I see it being 13, 14, maybe 20? There's no chance. None. So uh, uh, what number? 15 plus? is the, can, you, can you conceive 15 plus? I would say the over under on league starts for Oxlade Chamberlain this year as we, you know, move the pod to Vegas is uh fourteen. You 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 do a fifty I do a fifty dollars bet, no problem on fourteen over You're, under. Well I think that's the over under, so that's a fifty fifty bet. All right, I'll take the under just as a friendly wager. My my point is I think he's a fantastic player. I thought twenty do you really think he'll start twenty though? Is that is that your prediction? We'll do yeah, a that, we'll do a fifty a fifty uh Bitcoin bet on um, on four, on on over under fourteen. You take the over. I'll take the under. But is twenty? I mean, not no, to no, be a, a dick about it. Do you really $50. believe he'll start twenty? Yeah, I, I I think, I think he's the next in line. Like I think as soon as there's a a Santi or Ramsey injury, a Walcott injury, even an Alexis injury, as you root, like any of those players get injured, he's the next player to start. Okay. And, I mean, 
I think you know it will just come down to injuries. But so on for the pod's sake, are we saying fifty dollars, American dollars? So not Bitcoin, not Bitcoin. <laughs> Fourteen over under. All right, you'll take the over. I'll take the under. I, to be fair, I do think is he'll this start going quite to be a regular section? Yes. Elliot. yes. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. And now, all right, for for another fifty, Paul. Yeah. What number am I thinking of? Fifty. All right, I'll send you the money. Um, all right, final thought on Oxley chamberlain as we've come off the rails, but that's kind of a feature of our podcast too. Who, me? Yeah, final thought. Um, well, yes is my final thought. Look, I think he's going to be great. I think it's only question is, is this his breakout season or is it the next one? If it's this one, it's 20. Um, By the I, way, I, it could, he could be brilliant and still struggle to get 20 starts just because the person who has to go to the bench, assuming no catastrophic injuries, and I know with Arsenal you can't assume that, but the person who has to go to the bench for him to be a starter, if, if you're just saying selection-wise, forget injuries for a minute, is Ramsey or Cazorla. And no matter how good we think Oxlade-Chamberlain is, I don't think any of us believe the manager is going to send one of them to the bench regularly for Oxley chamberlain And let me make it slightly worse, which is the point I really wanted to make is uh, we have this conversation all the time on the Twitters and on here that Arsenal will want to drop Coquelin for as many games as possible against opponents that allow for that. And, right. you know, that's a much longer conversation. I think he's going to quickly realize what I realized last year. We're not better when we drop Coquelin. For all, all the... On, you know, on a clean sheet of paper, why we ought to be better. We're less balanced without Coquelin against pretty much any team. And I think it's going to not be a winning formula. So I think we're going to find a number. He's going to want to do it a lot to get other players on the field. It doesn't work well. So okay. that's, that, that's my little, my one-liner on that. Let, let's keep going on the game a little bit because there was one of those that we were talking about at some point in this podcast. Um <laughs> So the second half, uh, Giroud came on. We started to shut it down. You know, we we did bring on all the fullbacks thing where uh, Gibbs came on and we we took off Walcott. We took off Oxlade Chamberlain, and we really did a nice professional job. I thought of closing out the game. Um, Paul, we'll stay with you just for a second. First of all, Giroud, when he came in, we did look like we had a little bit more of a of a focal point because that's how he plays. Did you feel that Giroud and the effectiveness that, that we saw when Giroud was Giroud coming on and the effectiveness we saw when Giroud was on the pitch will be something that gives the manager that extra thought that maybe we still need to play with a more traditional center forward? Or do you think that it had as much or more to do with Chelsea at that, the game getting late and Chelsea kind of chasing, chasing an equalizer? Uh, I, I think it was entirely to be expected. It's the super sub effect. Uh, you you start Giroud, he's probably going to struggle against Chelsea, as we've seen before other times. Mm -hmm. um, they'll just keep banging him with two centre-backs. I think I remember us arguing about how poor Giroud had been against Chelsea before and me saying, well, he's banging up against two centre-backs, he's making space for us. And that's what they do. They make whoever your, your, your attacking force is look kind of ordinary. But you get the super sub effect when Giroud comes on at 65, 70 minutes. So I expected... Suddenly you see that the Giroud you don't know. He's running around the place. He's got space. He's got fresh legs. I think that's largely effect of, the, of a striker coming, a good striker, be it him or Walcott, uh, coming on at that stage of the game. They're going to look good. 
And he was, you know, Giro's actually better on the counterattack than we sometimes assume he is. We think he's not very fast, but he's pretty good on the gallop. Um, he's just not good on the, on the quick burst. So uh, he was getting around. He was a target man. Oxley Chamberlain put in a long cross to him. He almost kind of connected with cleanly on the far post. Uh, he had a couple of moments. I think it was just that phase of the game where we were catching them tired. We were on the counter. We've also seen before when we bring on all the defenders, we brought on Gibbs, we brought on Arteta, who I thought looked pretty spicy and feisty. I kind of liked his his few minutes um, playing for us. He got in, stuck into tackles, etc. But when you do that, it chores us up at the back and uh, perversely often gives us better attacking opportunities, which we saw of as we hit them on the counter and as they try. So I, what, what do I think the manager will take from that? I hope what he takes from it is the Theo Giroud thing, who, whichever one starts, is a pretty good combination. It's kind of a one-two punch that works very well. Uh, and on that topic, it was interesting. Theo was interviewed after the game, and we talked about him always wanting to play through the center. I'm not sure that's always what he always says. And lately, his story is a little different. And especially having just signed a contract, what he said was he'll play through the middle or on the right or on the left. And on the left kind of caught me because that's kind of what I talked about a little bit. We've seen in preseason with him starting on the left. Uh, and I can see that as an option for rotation with uh, Sanchez and also because Sanchez won't be fully fit for maybe a, a week or two or three here yet. So. Uh, this, the other thing you heard with Giroud was his rationalization for why he hadn't played, which was Theo had just scored in a previous game. So um, I think it's very fluid. I think it's they. I, I think the two of those guys can can live in the same space. Neither of them is going to kill the other's striking career. Uh, if we bring in a new striker, that'll that'll put a cat in the uh, among the pigeons. But I think that attacking. Uh, duo, whichever one starts, uh, could be really effective this year. And we're not we're not talking about Welbeck yet. It's mm-hmm. funny how players drop out of your consciousness. But those two, I think, can be a really good one-two punch. Whoever starts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the interesting thing is, I think we saw sort of what makes Giroud so uh, in, frustrating and exciting in equal measure. I mean, he he held the ball up well. He distributed well. He created that focal point and. I thought he was really effective. The reality is two chances fell to him. I'm not going to say they were easy chances by any means, but he didn't convert either one of them. Um, yeah. and, and you just wonder if maybe a, a, a better striker puts away one of those two chances and makes the game safe. Having said that, Cazorla had a brilliant chance that he really tamely took. Uh, Gibbs, you can forgive him a little more. I thought it was ironic that we had a discussion of Gibbs as an attacker on our last podcast, yeah. um, and he had a fairly straightforward opportunity to score a late second goal that he kind of flubbed. But I, I did like the way we finished the game. In the end, I think uh, Lauren Koscielny was sort of the, the social media choice for player uh, man of the match. I'm not sure if that's who was given man of the match. James, um, we have actually a question about this um, on Twitter. And I'll find it right now. It comes from Matt Horner at Matt Horner. He asks, who is your favorite defender of the last five years and why is it Lauren Koscielny? Has Lauren Koscielny really risen to the level where he is arguably the premier center back in uh, in English football? And was he your man of the match yesterday? Yes, yes, and yes. Um, okay, good talk. Um, solid. And also, mm-hmm. you, know, I, you know, there's no going back now, but would you care to guess how many starts 
Chamberlain had last season. In the league? Yeah. Like in the Premier League? Yeah. Seven? <laughs> Just add a teen to that, and you're there. He started 17 Premier League games last year? With six sub-appearances. Really? Well, you mm-hmm. know what? To be, to be fair, that's right. I should have thought. We started the season with basically no fit players. Yeah, well, well, I mean, listen, I, I honestly think... I mean, but that, that was an injury crisis of <laughs> epic proportions last year, right? I mean... Listen, I'm rubbing my hands over here. I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about a 14-over, but the only thing that I think could hinder that is if, if Alex gets a sort of six-month injury and then that really screws me over. But anyway, Lauren Koscielny is a phenomenal centre-back who has always shown a lot of promise. He's always had... Attributes in a similar manner to, to Gabriel. He's very quick. He's very strong in the air. His reading of the game is excellent. The number of interceptions he makes and the way that he complements Murdersacker, the way that he, he, he sweeps up behind and has that recovery pace is phenomenal. The issue we've always had with him is he's always in the past had those momentary blips where he's always susceptible to getting a sending off in combination with conceding some sort of penalty um, or doing something like that of the Capital One Cup final, which was in 2011, I believe. But he seems to have really eradicated that out of his game over the last year or two. Um, and thus, the incredible qualities that he has and possesses for a centre-back have really shone through. And he's no longer being beaten with that stick, whereby especially opposition fans always have deemed him to be somewhat of a liability. He's really brought that level of consistency to his game. And without a doubt, he's our best centre-back. And I think only Terry could probably um, stake a claim for being a better centre-back or even defender in the league. I think that's fair. Ultimately, I think the interesting question is now not about Lauren Koscielny, who's who's really been proven. It's who's going to play with him. And Wilhelm Wickland at Will Wickland, uh, Wickland, asks, will Gabriel become a first-team starter during the season ahead? In your mind, James, is is Gabriel a candidate to partner Koscielny, or is Mertesacker sort of the perfect combination of composure and and positional awareness and calmness that a Koscielny needs to be effective? I think Gabriel and Koscielny can work well, but I think that partnership will begin to form towards the end of the season or... Um, injury allowing. Um, you know, Murdersecker and Costiani have such a fantastic um, symbiotic relationship, so to speak, and um, the automatisms between those two are, um, are certainly at level 10 or, um, you know, at, at, the, at the highest level I think they can be. So, and we know the importance amongst the back four that that level of understanding and forming how important the formation of those relationships is. And that's going to take a little more time, especially for someone like Gabrielle, who seems to still not be able to speak a single word of English, which I still find rather amusing, if not in a sad um, and depressing manner. But that being said, Arsene at the end of last season, when he was giving the interview after the trophy presentations, did mention that, you know, the biggest you know, player, the player to really look out for this season would be Gabriel, and he speaks very highly of him whenever he talks about him. Um, and I think the only thing stopping Gabriel is now is just waiting on some sort of injury or um, a space to open up. And I, I am, I foresee Gabriel towards the end of the season really taking hold of that position. I don't rate Gabriel. Wow. <gasps> Should we put a bet on that? I think it's <laughs> terrible. Um, Paul. Is that serious? Yeah, I don't uh, like him. I think he's terrible. Really? Um, yeah, I don't rate him. Um, what? Do you want? No one wants to know why I think these things, right? Yeah. Well, Can I just I mean, be written off as a crazy they, old they man shouting at, shouting at clouds? 
yeah, well, all right, we'll keep it that I, way. My, my issue with him is basically this. We haven't seen enough of him to know, so I'm sort of being playful. But he likes to dive in. He likes to leave his feet. He's very aggressive. He's got a little of that vermolin in him where he'd rather step up than step back. And I, I think, first of all, as a partnership with Koscielny, that's disaster waiting to happen. He's physical in the air, which is all well and good. But as much as we, we do need that, and that's required in, in the English game, you know, if we're going to play a high line or if we, you know, we're, we're going to be vulnerable to, to fast counterattacks. I just don't love the idea of a center back, especially two center backs who are prone to stepping in and, and trying to intercept rather than dropping back. Um, but, but I, I've just been a little nervous about Gabrielle's um, aggressiveness and the way he, he approaches the game. I know a lot of people are ready for Murtisacker to sort of step aside, but I, I think by and large, I still like his calmness, his reading of the game, that he doesn't leave his feet so much. He hardly commits fouls. Paul, I guess we'll bring you back into the podcast. Yeah, sure, why not? Um, what are your thoughts on the back four? And then I also want to get your feeling on, on Bellerin. So uh, thoughts on the Koscielny, Murtisacker, and potentially Gabrielle uh, Carousel? Well, I think you're utterly wrong on Gabrielle, but we need to see a lot more of him to work out who the real Gabrielle is. I really like what I've seen. I think the biggest issue for Gabrielle is that people seem to completely underestimate Per Mertesacker and what he brings and how he works with Koscielny. The reason they have a love match is because of what they give each other. And, and people have heard that conversation before, but we shouldn't forget how good at distributing the Cam, the running the show at the back. You can see there's a real synergy now between him and Czech. They don't just look alike. Um, and it's not just a question that they can communicate over the top of everybody's heads in German and in English. Um, you know, there's a real affinity between those two. You can see those two running the dresser, dressing room and in particular sorting out the spine of this team and kind of defending from the back and just kind of calling the shots and reminding everybody where we're at in terms of uh, game time, game stage, game approach. Um, that's going to be Gabrielle's issue. Per isn't going to go away in the next one or two or three years, despite the fact that a lot of people don't like aspects about Per's game. I just don't see him going anywhere. So Three years might be a stretch. I think I, you know, I, I agree with one and maybe two. Well, sir, well, let's let's settle on two and see where where we are then. I think, I think he's. You want got to make a, a bet on it? <laughs> yes, one bitcoin. I'm a okay. small time player. Petit joueur, as the French say. Okay. So hey, what, what can, was the second part of the question? Kinfi or Aeroberg on Twitter, great follow as well. A e r o b e r g asks, does it now mean the right back position is Bellerin's to lose, or is it only because Debussy isn't fully fit? So, I mean, do do you take from? Bellerin starting the Community Shield, that, that Bellerin will now be the starting right back? Or, or do you think that the manager might still lean towards Debushi? I think he can still... I think he's got a real dilemma there, like he has all over the pitch, but particularly there. I think we can see why he feels he owes it to Debushi, And also, we can see what Debushi's strengths over a Bellerin would have been. Um, but a couple of things... Bellerin is the fittest for obvious reasons. Bellerin has earned it from the tail end of last year in terms of his form and his performances. And one other factor against Chelsea, he was outstanding against Chelsea the last time out and absolutely owned Hazard for that whole game. So 
you can see three reasons why Bellerin was the right choice this time round. So I don't think we really know. I'm not really sure. Uh, Debussy, uh, I think we've forgotten how good Debussy can be. I'm not saying he's brilliant, but he's very, very good. And he brings a solidity, uh, an aerial prowess that Bellerin doesn't have, a, a smarts in terms of defensive positioning. And we saw a little bit of, of Hector getting overwhelmed on the left wing uh, yesterday. And, you know, it's a lot for a 19-year-old, too, to be... He's learning a hell of a lot. So the competition will be good. Maybe they'll get about equal play during the year. I think that would be reasonably fair, even though we've got a manager who's not big on rotation. So here's my answer. I have no idea. Awesome. That's what we want here from the podcast <laughs> is sort of a vague, rambling, non-conclusive answer. I am your man. Well, I, I, can, I can certainly man that ship as well if required. Um, okay, so l- let's wrap it up on the game. Ultimately, I, I love the professionalism we showed down the stretch. The way we finished the game was was really nice to see. And, I, you know, I think back to games like Abue giving away that 147th-minute penalty against Liverpool and some of the other Ugh. ridiculous late, late loss, lost points that we've had. And it was really nice to see a professional finish to the match. And on full-time, one of the things that I thought was striking was sort of the the joy within the team is to be expected, but the reaction of Peter Cech, who seemed genuinely really excited about it, and there's a vine going around that purports to have said, I told you we'd beat them or we beat them or so I don't know. I couldn't care less about that stuff. But, uh, James, what were your thoughts really quickly just of, of Cech's performance, but also... Do you feel now, you know, does it feel like he is an Arsenal player and really committed to the cause? I mean, love the performance. There was just an assuredness that I haven't felt from a goalkeeper for as long as I can remember. Um, And I'm not even sure if that was necessarily down to what Czech did. I mean, his kicking is great. It's extremely accurate. He gets incredible length on the kicks. His, we saw several balls coming into the box that he punched um, he, under significant amounts of pressure. He obviously made a solid save, and it was a phenomenal save um, for that Oscar free kick. And it was really just a great game for Czech to play his first game for Arsenal, um, or first sort of somewhat competitive game against his old club. Because you know I was at Wembley, and the the atmosphere was at its greatest when ever check was involved in in something i mean the arsenal fans were loving it i think he took really well um to the reception that we we as a as a group gave him and it was remarkable to see because he's obviously you know such a incredible professional someone who clearly has a lot of affection for chelsea as a football club but immediately and and you could see it in that reaction when the final whistle blew he seems to have built a very um, strong relationship already with that, um, with the back four and the team as a whole, um, and he's one hundred percent fully committed to this cause. Um, and I think if you listen to the interviews he gives and you, you look at his reactions, I think he genuinely believes there's something very special in this team. Um, and it's it's great to see because you know seeing that commanding presence in um, in in our goal and, and wearing the Arsenal top is 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 a genuine pleasure and one that we haven't. Um, had the pleasure of having for uh, since I since Jens Lehmann and even Jens, as fantastic as he was and as much of a character as he was, still gave you the jitters um, because he always had it in him uh, to just be the mad Jens that he was. 
So, you know, I'd even argue that it's really been since since Seaman that we've had a keeper that is of the genuine quality that Pedicek clearly is, and I think he's come at such a perfect time in his career. Couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, I, I ultimately, it is so nice to have someone back, and he's not going to be perfect. No, no keeper is, but it's nice to have a, a keeper back there that you just don't worry about. You know, you don't you don't worry about him doing stupid stuff off the pitch. You don't worry about him doing stupid shit on the pitch. The thing that I see is a guy who's assured with the ball at his feet, which we haven't had for a while. You've had Ospina who only wanted to kick long. Yeah, Chesney who really just kicked it anywhere, anywhere skidded off his foot. Um, it is interesting how quickly Chesney has kind of been forgotten. He, you know, a lot of people had felt very strongly about him one way or the other, and same with Ospina. And now that Czech is here, it just it goes to show you, in my opinion, what adding real quality does. You sit around arguing and bickering and getting into Twitter fights over Ospina is great. Why don't you rate him? Or no, Chesney's the real deal. Ospina sucks. And then you get a check, and like nobody cares anymore. You know, it, it's like, <laughs> oh, we had other keepers, totally forgot. So and and that's the tribalism of it, and that that's the myopia of being a supporter is that you become so caught up with wanting to see quality in your players, and then you get a genuinely quality player, and all that other arguing and and debating just seems foolish. Um, Paul, quick thoughts on on check if you want, but just as sort of a, a final thought on um, the match itself, in your opinion. How much does this mean, and, and do you buy into the argument that it is psychologically important? I mean, we saw that winning the Community Shield did nothing for our season last year. Because of the manager, because of the team we beat, because of our manager's track record, do you buy into the theory that that this is this is somehow really significant? Yes, I do. And I bicker with your point about last year. If you mean by... We won the Community Shield but didn't win the Premier League. We did go to the Etihad and beat them. And it was our most important game of the year, our most important, our most impressive victory of the year. And the one that even though if you look at the points, we're still not brilliant against the top four. It changed the main mentality that Arsenal, you know, it's now a meme. Oh, we're, we're now OK against the big sides away from home. Because, yes, there was the United win in the FA Cup, but really it's that City game. And so I think it had a big impact for us psychologically. And the players are telling you that, and even the manager is telling you that. In answer to the question about the Mourinho bogey, he says, he's basically saying, well, I didn't have a problem with it, but my my players really did. And they've got the monkey off their back, which is Wenger's uh, speak for, he's not going to admit it, but it really was getting to him too. So I think this is a really big deal, even if the game isn't the world's most important game. It's way more than a friendly. Uh, you know, I think it's as important as a Premier League game, points and all. Well, that'll do it for Paul. Because belief is everything. Back. Your, your, inter- um, your internet I think this, decided to call For whatever time. reasons, belief... Oh, fuck. No, you're fine. It's back now. It's yeah. back now. Keep going. You, you had a full head of steam. I'm sorry. All right. Keep going. Here's my shortened version. It matters because it mattered at City last year, and that was our most important game of the year. Getting the monkey off our back with Chelsea is was key, is key. The manager said it indirectly, indirectly. Uh, we have belief. We can use this during the season. 
even if it's just the community shield, as long as everybody has a mental image of what we can do against Chelsea, this is a big deal. Yeah, all right. Well, I mean, I'm happy to see it as a big deal. Obviously, it becomes a big deal if we follow it up with a good start to the season and potentially taking three points off Chelsea in the league or six points off Chelsea in the league or whatever we can manage, but something better than what we've done recently. Let's leave it there for the the shield. Um, it's the summer treble completed, which is great. And maybe we can turn it into a septuple by winning the quad this season. Anything less than that will be a disappointment. We should wrap it up because we've gone long, mostly due to James and I uh, placing wagers. By the way, now that I know James that he played or started 17 games last season, um, you want to you want to change the bet by any chance? <laughs> um, no, I'm I'm happy with my bet. I I can't wait till he plays 21 and then everyone can abuse the crap out of me even more than usual. Um, let's finish up. With just do this. me just fine. Yeah, let, let's do let's finish up just with this. Your top four prediction for the Premier League this season. Don't need any explanation. Just the four in reverse order. From four to one. Uh, Paul, we'll start with you to switch things up. How do you see the top four falling out fourth to first? If I had to bet my mortgage on it, I'd go United fourth, City third, us second, Chelsea first. But I'm pretty optimistic. Ah, that would. I mean, look, I think that is that would be a nice season. And if we're in the title race throughout, that's the least. You know, that, that's really what we're asking for is a genuine title challenge. How about you, James? United, City, Chelsea, Arsenal. Interesting. Um, I, you know, I, I think there's a chance that City could be really bad. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I don't know. I, at least I want to believe that. Um, but can you ever be really bad when you have an Aguero? No. If he can you plays, ever be really, really bad? Plays. I mean, it, it'll be interesting, right? I mean, we're, we're still, I think, in a situation where De Gea and Di Maria are going to leave United. I think Aguero, who knows, maybe, maybe Madrid will come in for him, and maybe that'll be the catalyst for us getting someone named Benzema. I don't know. We'll find out. I'll say um, City fourth, United third, uh, Chelsea second, Arsenal first. Wow. So we'll leave it there uh, because we've been running long, which is sort of how we do it. Um, That was our final preseason tune-up, so you can expect even better from us next week, um, which will take us up to passable. Uh, Absolutely send in questions um, after a match at the hashtag ArsenalV, as in victory podcast, or at the Arsenal Vision podcast uh, uh, Twitter account, which is Arsenal V podcast. And don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get this pod saying, gosh, these guys are great. You know, they're not very good at podcasting, but they seem like nice guys or something like that. Um, uh, so let's say goodbye to our guest, Paul. You can find him on Twitter at Poznan in my pants. Paul, as always, it was a pleasure. Woohoo! Woohoo. Yep. Woohoo in woohoo indeed. And James, debating slash arguing slash gambling with you was a delight as always. You can find James on Twitter at GoonerFanatic49. Thanks, James. Thank you, Elliot. I'm looking forward to uh adding that fifty dollars to my wallet come the end Bitcoin. of the season. Bitcoin. Fifty Bitcoin. Yeah. My name is well, Elliot. Smith. Well, well uh, yeah, we'll I'll be sure to record this and favorite it for uh when that time comes please, this podcast. Please do. Uh the the check is in the mail. Uh my name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Hope it's a wonderful, wonderful season for Arsenal, uh, for us on the podcast, for everyone listening. Hope you enjoyed what was a really encouraging preseason. Long may it continue. Um, And we will talk to you after the opening match of the season. Until then.